Welcome to Waco Watch, the podcast. I am Dewana McCray. I'm here with Mike Tomasulo and Danielle Williams to talk about the second trial in the VLSI versus Intel case. In this trial, VLSI is seeking over $1 billion in damages from Intel for Intel's alleged infringement of two patents. Danielle and Mike, what happened today? Duana, today the jury heard opening statements followed by VLSI's first three witnesses, uh, Mr. Spihar, who is from NXP, Mr. Seaborg, also from NXP, and then Professor Glenn Reinman from UCLA uh, is a VLSI's infringement expert for the 187 patent. Okay, so let's jump right in and talk about the arguments each side presented today. Based on VLSI's opening statement and first three witnesses, Mike, could you give us the gist of VLSI's positions and arguments so far? Yeah, hi, Dewana. So, I, th I mean, following VLSI, not surprisingly, they won the first trial. They won a $2.2 billion verdict. So, not surprisingly, they're following the same formula, more or less. So, in the opening statement, they previewed that the uh, Sigmatel was an innovative company thinking outside the box, coming up with, you know, uncommonly interesting solutions that uh, were different from those of Intel's and IBM's of the world that led to the 187 and 522 patents. They said that these two patents in particular addressed the sort of constant problems in the industry of power savings and improvements of speed, and that Intel has extensively used and financially benefited in a significant way from that use. In the first case, VLSI presented two witnesses to present the face of VLSI and you know, humanize its invention story. One of those was Mr. Spihar, and the other one was an inventor. In this case, Intel pushed back on that. Mr. Spihar was there to you know, present NXP's story, but also to present a story about who is VLSI, why did NXP do a deal with VLSI. In the first case, Intel sort of allowed that to happen. In this case, they pushed back. Mr. Spihar wasn't a precipient witness. He had nothing to do with that deal. And he really was just testifying exclusively on hearsay. So Intel tried somewhat unsuccessfully to, to push some of that back. The second witness, Mr. Seaborg, he wasn't really a precipient witness of anything interesting either. He wasn't an inventor. And so it seemed to me that what happened is the inventors were not willing to testify in person or certainly didn't seem to be friendly witnesses to VLSI. So they used Mr. Seaborg to kind of present the story of Sigmatel as an interesting and innovative company. So as the infringement case, what we got was what we'd expect to see from uh, you know an infringement witness they pointed with high energy to the intel testimony intel documents intel source code as support for his position that there was infringement of the 187 patent the the, the gist of it was that there's a specific part of the chip called the fiver fivr fully integrated voltage regulator and that was the source of the infringement and the key issue there was that VLSI's argument is that anytime there's an idle state and the power's on, the claims are satisfied, and Intel has a different interpretation of that claim limitation. And lastly, the infringement expert talked about he had reviewed some testing performed by another expert, Dr. Anavaram, and he said that he, he was tying in that testing to the improvement of the performance of the chip in terms of power savings and speed. He says that there's a 587 percent improvement in power savings and 2.15 percent improvement in speed that results from the alleged infringement 
Thank you, Mike. Jumping to Intel's position, based on Intel's opening statement and cross-examination of VLSI's three witnesses, Danielle, what points were Intel trying to get across? Joanna, Intel's presentation uh, has some similarities to uh, its approach in the first trial and at least a couple differences uh, that seem to be uh, bubbling up to the top in just this first day's presentation. So for the for the opening statement, I think that most of it was pretty similar to the to the first trial. They are taking the position naturally that Intel doesn't infringe and with some commentary about the fact that VLSI's patents uh, have expired or will expire in the next month. So one of them has expired and then the other one has another six weeks of life left on it. And then no one who ever owned the patents asserted them against Intel until the last days, last years of the life uh, of these patents. Um, there was also significant presentation in the opening statement about uh, damages and how the damages here aren't even in the same realm as what VLSI is asking for. So generally speaking, we're expecting to see a non-infringement case. We're expecting to see an, an invalidity case like we saw in, in the first trial, obviously uh, different, different circumstances here. Instead of focusing on the industry use they seem to be focusing on the delay in bringing any allegations against Intel or anyone in the industry uh, for infringement. As far as the, the first uh, two witnesses that were the, the employees uh, from NXP, just like Mike was saying, uh, Intel was resisting uh, the opportunity for VLSI to tell its story through these two witnesses. So uh, Intel spent a, spent time with both of these witnesses distancing NXP and Sigmatel from VLSI. So neither one of these witnesses had met the folks from VLSI or knew what they did uh, or had spent uh, any time with them trying to, to understand what their roles were in the company. Intel spent a, a decent amount of time also highlighting uh, what NXP does and confirming that it is a large company and based in uh, the Netherlands. So a little bit of a different tack, sort of trying to detract from the humanization that the plaintiff the plaintiff did in the first trial. As far as the infringement expert, some of the same themes were were carried through as far as the the timing of the lawsuit, uh, the life left on the patents, but then there was an significant amount of time spent on what Intel's non-infringement defense appears to be, which is going to be around what the word when means in the context of the claims. So we'll see how this continues to, to play out, particularly in Intel's case in chief. You both gave, you know, great overviews of the party's arguments from day one. What are the implications from the party's positions today? Well, I mean, I think, you know, VLSI again is, is sort of sticking with the playbook that worked so well for them last time. They, you know, the tech is good. It's important. Uh, it was important at Sigmatel and they added in a twist this time and said it continues to be used at NXP. And of course their allegation is that it's used by Intel. 
And what we saw, uh, Intel's response to that is uh, the technology is stale. So through through all of the the witnesses, they did draw out the the date of the patent or the date of the patents and how much time has passed and how the technology that may have been relevant to MP3 players back in the two, early 2000 will have little to no relevance to today's uh, today's technology. So we'll see how that continues to to play out. But I I would expect uh, Intel's own engineers to uh, dovetail into that theme that they that they brought out on cross examination of uh, BLSI's witnesses. I, I think it's a understandable position that Intel says, look, the, this technology was invented to conserve power in a, in a battery operated MP3 player in 2000. Uh, it has no application to a, a microprocessor that runs a, you know, $30,000 server. On the other hand, what uh, was interesting redirect on, on the expert was asked, you know, do, do modern, um, computers use copper wire? Do they use transistors? Do they use solder? And, you know, the answer, of course, is yes to all of those things. And trying to make the point that, you know, just because something's old doesn't mean it's not fundamental. So it, I think, you know, it's a, it's something that comes up in a lot of these cases, and I'm personally very interested to see, you know, how, how it plays out. What, what does this argument that the technology is stale, does it resonate? I'm with you, Mike. I am interested to see how that plays. And Danielle and Mike, switching um, gears a little bit from the parties to the bench, what did we see from the bench today? Well, one thing we see and we continue to see is that on cross-examination, the witnesses need to answer the question asked. And what did you see, Danielle? What I see is a consistent application of the court's preferences across the trials that, that we've had the opportunity to, to listen to or attend. So in addition to the cross-examination, the court wants the parties to treat the deposition as if it doesn't exist. And so when the parties are asking questions, ask the question that you're seeking the testimony about and not reference the prior deposition in any capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's pretty, pretty rudimentary stuff. And I think he's, he's pretty strict about it. I think he's also, he's reinforced his position that fact witnesses need to testify from personal knowledge. And I think he's reinforced his position that if you're going to try to impeach a, uh, you know, it's going back to your point about the deposition. If you're going to try to impeach a witness, you need to do it the right way. You ask the question, uh, preferably similar or identical to the question uh, at the deposition. And if there is a clear inconsistent statement, then you can bring up the deposition and do the impeachment. But he's, he's, you know, across all of these cases been pretty consistent in the application that you you need to do things the you know the strict right way it is encouraging to see the court applying uh, his procedures uh, in the trials consistently uh, and having uh, had the opportunity to listen in to now our third trial over a period of uh, roughly two months uh, to see that consistent application is is something that that folks uh, can can prepare for uh, and be aware of before they go to trial in front of Judge Albright. Absolutely. Good point, Danielle. Thanks, Mike and Danielle. I'm interested to see how it plays as well. And I look forward to hearing more about the party's arguments and testimony during the remaining days of 
this trial, um, the VLSI versus Intel trial number two. And to the listeners, please tune in next time. Thank you all.